Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, finally in the middle, well, not in the middle, the beginning of summer, I guess. I think when I think about summer, you know, it's when it starts getting warmer, but officially we're in summer now. Um, hope you had a great weekend last weekend with the 4th of July and all the fireworks that were postponed by one day because of nasty weather. Uh, I didn't get to see them, but I heard they were pretty good. So I uh, wanted to get into some of the specifics of the impact of the Dobbs decision that came out, as we all know, about two weeks ago from the United States Supreme Court that basically eliminates uh, federal protections by case law for women to choose to get an abortion um, based upon their own estimation of what's right for them. And basically we revert now to individual state statutes that uh, lay out when or if an abortion can be performed. Now, there's been a lot of talk about what this really means, but we want to look at the actual laws here in Wisconsin. And let's be clear, the existing laws do not prevent a mother from um, obtaining an abortion. That's absolutely legal in and of itself. However, the laws are aimed at one who would uh, provide or perform that abortion and renders it illegal except in situations where it's to preserve the life or health of a woman um, as determined by reasonable medical judgment of an attending physician. So what this changes is it basically takes away the ability for a pregnant woman to decide for personal reasons that she does not wish to be pregnant um, and puts it in the hands of physicians who have to make certain determinations in order for an abortion to occur. So there's actually um, two statutes in Wisconsin. And one of the reasons why we have these two different statutes is because for years and years and years, they haven't really been uh, applicable because of Roe versus Wade. And so there's kind of some conflicting uh, provisions in here, but we'll start with talking about um, kind of the earlier version of the ban on abortion. And this is found under section 940.04 of the Wisconsin statutes. And that specifically states that any person other than the mother who intentionally destroys the life of an unborn child is guilty of a class H felony. Any person other than the mother who does either of the following is guilty of a class E felony, intentionally destroys the life of an unborn quick child, or causes the death of the mother by an act with intent to destroy the life of an unborn child. It is necessary to prove that the fetus was alive when the act so causing the mother's death was committed, but does not apply to therapeutic abortion, which is performed by a physician and is necessary or is advised by two other physicians as necessary to save the life of the mother. And it must be performed in a licensed maternity hospital back when there were such things. And unless an emergency prevents that. So, you know, you can see that it allows for abortions, but only under certain specific circumstances. And basically, um, if we're talking about 
someone who intentionally causes the death of an unborn child, that there can be a crime there. There's another section a little bit further in the same statutory provisions that addresses abortion. And this one says that whoever intentionally performs an abortion after the fetus or unborn child reaches viability as determined by reasonable medical judgment of the woman's attending physician is guilty of a class I felony. Viability means the stage of fetal development when, in the medical judgment of the attending physician, based on the particular facts of the case before him or her, there is a reasonable likelihood of sustained survival of the fetus outside the womb with or without artificial support. Now that's in conflict with the previous section I just pointed out, which says that an unborn child is a human being from the time of conception until it's born alive. So this additional section later in the statutes, a little further down in the statutes, talks about the concept of viability actually makes it later in uh, the time when someone would be pregnant. So under that version of the statute, um, if a child is not viable, um, in other words, if in the medical judgment of an attending physician, there is not a reasonable likelihood of sustained survival outside the womb, then this law does not apply. Um, so basically, it, it's it's kind of confusing here. And it's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what this really means, but, you know, none of this applies to the actual woman who would be seeking the abortion. And, you know, if you think about it, that's problematic because it, it will not criminalize abortions themselves that when a woman seeks an abortion, she will not be prosecuted. Um, it just means basically that one can seek to have one perform, but not you know, by anyone who would do it. So anyone who would assist or be part of the process um, could, in fact, be prosecuted. Now, there's been talk about whether someone who gives advice to somebody that says, um, hey, maybe you should get an abortion, go talk to this person, you know, could be guilty of a conspiracy type situation. But according to the statute, it says the person, including a physician who intentionally um, causes the death of a viable uh, child, a viable fetus, um, can be prosecuted for that act. So there's a lot of interpretation here that's involved. And frankly, it's going to have to go back to the legislature because these were, for lack of a better term, sort of neglected statutes because they were, they were meaningless. Um, now, there is an original version that goes way back to 1849, but there's several things that have been put into the statutes along the way. But again, under current law, uh, no woman can be prosecuted for having an abortion. Um, so when this goes back to the legislature for clarification, and again, we've got this conflict right within the law, the difference between what an unborn child means and a viable child means, there's still a lot of room for how that would work. But this does at least for the time being, until the legislature clarifies this, means that facilities such as, you know, Planned Parenthood and other organizations that offer, you know, abortion services that don't meet quite that standard 
Um, and in order to provide that as a service to women, basically will not be able to do so anymore because of the the restrictions or the the way that this should be um, applied. So we did hear, I'm sure you've heard, that the District Attorney of Sheboygan has vowed to prosecute anyone who violates these laws. Um, kind of an outlier as it relates to the rest of the state because no other district attorney that I'm aware of has announced an intent to do so. And of course, the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin has announced a policy that certainly makes it uh, less of a clear um, mandate as to how these types of cases will be handled. Um, so things are in a bit of a state of flux. Uh, true, there has been a significant change in the legal landscape as to how this all works, but we have yet to see how this will pan out, because if someone were to be prosecuted today under this statute, it would be very difficult to determine um, what exactly those parameters are because of these conflicting provisions. And again, it would be a physician or any person who intentionally ends the life of either an unborn child or a viable fetus. So we'll keep track of this. There's going to be lots of developments in this area. I just thought it was important to talk about what the law actually is, because a lot of commentary that's been out there um, has been inaccurate and has not referenced the law specifically. Um, it is something that causes concern when we have vague laws that it's unclear exactly what uh, is or isn't a criminal act. And theoretically, one way of reading these statutes is that um, ab abortions could go forward, much as they have already, just based upon opinions and the and and the ability to do so to um, preserve or save the life of the mother. Now that's also subjective. So you can see there would be situations where if a doctor in his or her medical judgment believes that it's necessary to preserve that life, and it doesn't mean like save the life, but increase the odds of someone surviving, you can see where the um, uh, vagueness there kind of makes it problematic as far as enforcement. So we'll see what happens, but um, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. A very significant decision from the Wisconsin Supreme Court came out earlier this week, and that is in the case of State versus Crystal Kaiser. If you've been following this case at all, or if you're aware of it, you know that uh, Crystal Kaiser was a victim of human trafficking, as that term has been defined by law. Uh, under both state and federal statutes. And she essentially, for, for to make it very simple here, uh, killed her pimp while he was in the process of sexually assaulting her. So there is a law in the books that has been there for quite some time that indicates um, there is a form of, it doesn't say amnesty, but it's the idea is that when one is a victim of human trafficking, that the fact that they were a victim of that uh, trafficking can be used as a defense against something they're charged with. And in fact, there are provisions in the statute that say it can be not only um, a basis for non-prosecution, but also a dismissal of charges, which is basically an exception to the way that Marcy's Law and other victims' rights statutes apply. So in other words, you have a victim of, uh, you know, this type of abuse, 
And then you have a victim of a murder, and which victim takes priority here when we're talking about how we sort it all out under the law. So here's the fascinating thing about Crystal Kaiser's case. Um, that, that law was in existence, but it was very un- unclear what it actually meant. What was the, what was the meaning behind uh, having this sort of defense? How should it apply? What does it mean in court? And what does that mean as it relates to prosecutorial discretion and how they go about um, prosecuting cases like this? So the, the prosecution from the outset, and this is a case in Kenosha County, uh, stated that their position was, well, yes, she was a victim of human trafficking, and that's clear, but the, she shot this person in the head, she burned his house down, and stole his car. And when initially asked about the facts of the case, she lied to the police. So all of those things, they have argued, takes it out of this realm where there should be any consideration of her being a victim of human trafficking. And in fact, they the prosecutors argued against her being able to talk about that at all at trial. She shouldn't be allowed to talk about being a victim of human trafficking because it's not relevant to... Uh, the defense. Now, it gets a little more complicated because there has always been, and of course still is, the defense of necessity on the books. That's an affirmative defense. And we have to talk about burdens of proof and how they lay out. In a typical, traditional, as it were, uh, necessity defense, the burden is on the defense to actually show that something was necessary under the law and the person literally had no choice other than to make this you know we call it like the you know the lesser of two evils or the the, does one have the need to make a decision that is completely unavoidable i mean the best example that we see over the years is when someone is impaired by alcohol, but there is a medical emergency involving another person and they need to get that person to the hospital immediately, and they do so, but in the process, the police ask, hey, have you had anything to drink? And the defense there would be, yes, and yes, I was impaired, but I had to, I had no choice. I had no other option. So in a case like that, the questions would be, could you have called somebody else? Could you have called 911? Could you have gotten an Uber for this person to get to the house? They'd look at other options, other choices, other things that you could have done in order to um, avoid having to commit this other crime. We also get into subsets of affirmative defenses and Ironically enough, you know, self-defense is one of those special categories of um, an affirmative defense that does require the defense to present some evidence and it shifts the burden and then the state has to argue against that in order to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, here, um, you know, this doesn't fall within the traditional category of self-defense in the sense that Yes, Crystal was being sexually assaulted. Yes, she did, quote-unquote, defend herself. But it wasn't circumstances where her life was at risk. She was merely, according to the prosecutors, merely being raped again, like she had been so many times before. And it was not a logical consequence. One could envision that she would die as a result of that. I know, pretty weird argument, right? But technically, under the law, that's what they were saying. 
if she didn't perceive imminent death or, you know, something that required her to save her own life, then she wasn't entitled to, you know, kill the pimp. Uh, now, here's another thing that's interesting about the case as far as up until the time that the Supreme Court decision has come out, the posture of the case has been that the trial court agreed with the prosecution that none of this background information could come into play because it would confuse the jury and it's not relevant to whether she did or didn't kill the person. It's not relevant to any of these other aspects of the case. And they were just charging this as a, a traditional, kind of an odd word to use, but traditional first-degree intentional homicide where someone plans, premeditates, and executes uh, you know, the process of taking away another person's life with uh, the intent to do so. Now, a little bit of background on this guy that was you know, the pimp, for lack of a better term. Um, basically, she had been uh, recruited by this guy, and his name was Randall Philip Volar. And he was 34 years old at the time that he died, and this happened in 2018. Um, she had committed the crime, this crime that's alleged when she was 17, and as we've said, there has been uh, a law on the books that allows for um, a defense under the right set of circumstances. And the thing that's been so controversial about this case is the way that the prosecutors has, have basically fought against the application of a law that should be applicable here. Interestingly, uh, it goes up to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals um, reverses the trial court. In other words, saying that, yes... Ms. Kaiser can use this. And by the way, there hasn't been a trial yet. This has all been, you know, in the interim while things have been pending. And so again, the Court of Appeals, the next step up in, an appellate, in the appellate process, reverses the trial court's decision and says, yes, this can be used as a defense. But then the question becomes, is this um, a, an absolute defense? Or is it something that j simply mitigates the degree of homicide. And they basically said that could be a direct uh, and absolute defense, but unless it says so in the statutes, which doesn't, it only makes sense that we should view this as something that in the discretion of the court could be used as a differing form of homicide. So what I mean by that is that we have first-degree intentional homicide. Then we have various forms of reckless homicide and negligent homicides that are lesser. They are not as serious in terms of maximum penalties that may apply. And of course, anytime there's a homicide charge, that's a natural part of what has to be analyzed. It's a very complicated process. So the Court of Appeals basically said that, you know, there's still, it doesn't prevent a prosecution. It doesn't uh, stop the defense from being able to present this type of evidence, but it's not necessarily something that uh, can be presented as an absolute defense. So earlier this week, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin says, okay, we agree in part with what the Court of Appeals said, which is it can be used as a defense, but they went further and said, yes, this can be an absolute defense. In other words, one can be found not guilty based upon if that person is a victim of human trafficking 
and the crime that is committed, I have to say crime in quotes because it wouldn't be a crime if they're found not guilty, if the act that is committed is a direct result from the human trafficking, the defendant can win the case. That's basically what they said. So kind of a very significant and watershed moment in the law. Now, a little tidbit of something interesting here. The uh, prosecution in Kenosha County, which is kind of notorious for <laughs> doing a bad job in cases, if you if you know what I mean, um, argue, you know, argued that they should be allowed to do this. Then, of course, as part of that process, the attorney general through the Department of Justice represents the state and basically has to take the same position as the prosecution, which they did. And then going up to the Supreme Court, same thing. Attorney General argues on behalf of the state that Crystal Kaiser should not be allowed to present this type of evidence. Well, shortly after the decision was announced, uh, Attorney General Josh Call said, this was great. This is a good job. Uh, and even though our department was arguing for the opposite result, we're glad that this result occurred. Uh, kind of weird. Anyway, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Talking again about the... Uh, very significant Supreme Court ruling that just occurred in the case of State versus Kaiser and um, some of the ramifications of that. So this is not the end of the story. As I mentioned in the last segment, this has been pending. This is an interlocutory um, decision because it, it basically will determine how the trial will work going forward. And now, according to this Supreme Court decision, and it's not anticipated that this would go to another level, in other words, it wouldn't go to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's unlikely. Um, but it is significant to note that there are other states in our nation that have similar laws. And in fact, California adopted a law that was based on the Wisconsin law. And and this law you know, originated from many anti-sex trafficking advocates and different organizations to provide a means by which one can uh, you know, bring out this evidence for the jury to consider in order to determine if they are in fact a victim of human tra trafficking and if that is something that led to the events that resulted in somebody dying or, or whatever. And, and so again, technically the law says that one uh, can present that evidence in the form of a defense. It gets really complicated though when we're talking about homicide cases because of all the different what-ifs, all the different permutations, all the variations that one can present. And I've always found this fascinating that if we're talking about a, a simpler crime, one, you know, like robbing a liquor store or stealing a car, you know, the state has to prove certain elements of the offense. They have to prove them beyond a reasonable doubt. If there are affirmative defenses that can apply based on the circumstances, then we've got shifting burdens and all this other stuff. Um, relatively straightforward. Did the thing happen or not? Is it against the law? But when it comes to homicide, there's so many different, you know, subcategories. As I was mentioning before, first degree intentional homicide. There's um, reckless homicide, negligent homicide. There's all kinds of different things that are lesser uh, versions of that. And, and the reason that we have to have those lesser versions is that the, the highest crime that exists on our books, a first-degree intentional homicide, means that someone 
100% knew what they were doing, wanted to do it and wanted to kill and did so. That that's, you know, just like a classic you know, hitman situation or, you know, applauding, planning and and um making the events, you know, go forward without withdrawing from any such plan or uh, anything like that. Now, there's also very interesting ways that we've recognized for many, many years that self-defense is something that can be applicable. We also have to kind of square this with why do we protect those Second Amendment rights the way we do? And part of it has to do with, um, well, I mean, you have to read into it. It doesn't say this in the Constitution. In fact, it doesn't say anything about this in the Constitution. But, you know, is it connected to one's uh, so-called right to defend oneself or protect one's family? And to give any meaning to that, if one's life is threatened and one has a firearm, they should be allowed to defend themselves by use of that firearm. Otherwise, you know, there would be no reason whatsoever to have firearms if they can't be used to defend one's life or somebody else's life. You know, maybe that's something better left to the military, but the point is that we have uh, situations, clearly, where someone has access to a firearm and if it needs to be used in order to save one's own life, it can be. And if that's successfully presented to the jury, it is an absolute defense. Now, it, the problem is that there might be some question as to uh, the person's state of mind at or shortly before one of those acts may have occurred that resulted in somebody else dying. And that's why, because of all this surrounds one's mental state, what they're thinking. And we hear this a lot when we talk about the law. No one can read another person's mind. You can only gather from circumstantial evidence what someone may have been thinking. And again, when it comes down to intent, the prosecution's job is to prove what that intent was. And it's almost always, well, I think always done through circumstantial evidence. You know, you've heard cases where uh, a spouse kills, you know, their, their other spouse. And then it turns out there was an opportunity for financial gain by virtue of a life insurance policy or some sort of contract that was entered into whereby if the one spouse died, the other one would be enriched tr tremendously in some way. Or... You know, the spouse is just is angry because the other spouse, you know, cheated on that person or something like that. Well, these are all motives, things that get ascribed to uh, one's, you know, intent, because intent has to be inferred as necessary. You can't read a person's mind. Um, now, if someone comes right out and says, yep, I did it because I wanted to, and it wasn't self-defense, and I just plain wanted to kill the other person, end of story. Well, they've pretty much proven their intent, but it doesn't happen that way often. So getting back to this Kaiser case, um, you know, the prosecution took this, I think, really unreasonable approach that all they need to prove is that she killed him, and it was under circumstances where it was done intentionally. They had evidence of planning, so to speak, but that same evidence could be argued 
to support the idea that she was in fact a victim of human trafficking and that being in that position she's entitled to stand on different legal ground and not have to defend herself in ways that normally would apply in that situation so let's talk about that um this has been an effort to carve out a special category of when one is a victim of that type of crime and in order to enhance the ability for us to you know stop that kind of crime theoretically because any law it should also serve a deterrent effect now i seriously wonder in question whether there are a lot of human traffickers out there that are paying attention to this and would say oh any one of the victims of my crime could kill me now so i better stop human trafficking um well the reality is it probably doesn't work that way but those are the types of policy considerations that of course come into play here and that's you know one of the main reasons behind this law being passed is that it's an effort to stop human trafficking that's part of what is going on here right so when we're talking about um why this is a special category and i think this this bears uh, giving some attention to what we do know about people that are victims that are in this situation is that, um, that by its nature, human trafficking is such that it has the ability to completely imprison a person uh, under the control of another person who is doing the trafficking. Meaning that there are a number of ways that through violence or dependence or whether it's financial or otherwise, um, a pimp can have someone who's being trafficked under their complete control in such a way that it's almost impossible to escape, um, mostly due to fear or ongoing abuse. And we, we know this syndrome because it's talked about a lot where, you know, it's often asked, well, hey, you know, if this person was being violent to you, if they were forcing you to have um, sex with other people, with strangers for money, um, why didn't you just call the police? Why didn't you just uh, leave? And that's one of the reasons why we've, we've created this law. You know, if someone is engaged in prostitution against their will, the idea is that they should be able to report it and get protection from the government. Uh, against retaliation in that situation. In other words, they shouldn't fear prosecution themselves for having engaged in um, illegal activity because it was involuntary, basically. So acknowledging the fact that this is a societal problem that our laws need to address, um, you know, we get into this territory where um, what does it mean in a situation where someone who legitimately sees no way out of this so-called, you know, quote-unquote imprisonment of this um, life situation that is it logical that one would see no way out and that the only option is to kill the other person? Not pure self-defense like we normally think about it because we normally look at, oh, look at all the other things you could have done. You didn't have to kill this person. You could have called the police. You could have run away. You could have moved to another country etc. Those are all things the prosecution would like to argue in, in fact scenarios like this. But we'll talk about how this all changes and what the meaning of this um, decision is when we come back. Welcome back. It's undetermined whether 
the Kenosha County DA's office will resume the prosecution of in the Kaiser case. I would imagine that they will because the Supreme Court didn't say, hey, you know, this case should be dismissed, didn't say anything of the kind. It just clarifies and supports the defense position that this information of being the victim of human trafficking should be presented to the jury. And then the jury should be told that this is an absolute, um, if proven, you know, direct defense. Now, let's talk about that proven. Um, The question comes down to the defense is allowed to present this information as the background and reasons why this happened. It also based on the Supreme Court ruling, there is no technical burden on the defense, like beyond a reasonable doubt or preponderance or any of that other stuff, because of the way that this statute works. So unlike other self-defense type scenarios, because this is a unique or special circumstance, I guess, it's something that comes into play. The defense can present this evidence, and it still is the responsibility of the prosecution to prove every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, you can see how this will play out. Now that the defense is allowed to basically explain the background behind all this and why she did it, and that she's not required to prove that she was in fear for her life or imminent death in order to present this evidence, which was what they were saying before, um, that she can invoke the statute that says if it is the direct result from human trafficking, in other words, did she do this because she was being trafficked, then, you know, that is a defense and it's an absolute defense, which means if the jury agrees, not guilty. Yet there's no burden from the defense that they have to overcome any particular burden. It's It lies squarely on the prosecution. So in other words, defense gets a introduce this evidence they get to talk about it the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this wasn't the reason why she committed the crime so one would wonder given this ruling why there would be any prosecution going forward at this point because it's very clear that under the standard that she should not be convicted well this is you know yet another example of how it puts the prosecution in, I guess, a difficult position because they have to faithfully enforce the laws that are created by our legislators. They also have to factor in, and I'll tell you, Kenosha County is very good at this, figuring that it's their job to protect you know, society by viewing the law a particular way. And they tend to take cases to trial that shouldn't go to trial. I mean, I don't know how you feel about the Rittenhouse case, but I think we all agree that given the outcome, that was a tremendous waste of time and resources. Well, we didn't know what the outcome was going to be, so you can't really blame anybody. But, you know, given the fact that it was poorly prosecuted and that the theme and theory behind what they were even trying to show fell apart in the midst of the trial and, and so on, I just can't imagine a scenario where a jury would still convict uh, Ms. Kaiser under these circumstances now that the Supreme Court has cleared the way for this evidence to be introduced and be relevant. So, again, this is way where we're trying to give meaning, real meaning, to the laws that are created to try and uh, protect or advocate for 
victims in this situation. Again, acknowledging that it's a very difficult thing to break free from um, that type of imprisonment in the in that type of relationship. So, you know, this guy that died is not really a very savory character. Um, <laughs> just a little bit of background on on this guy that died. Um, he was sexually abusing not only her but many underage girls. He had created uh, hours and hours and hours of child pornography where with himself and other men sexually assaulting children. And, you know, just not somebody that you would think uh, under the circumstances would be, you know, be the subject of this prosecution for the ultimate crime. You know, the highest level offense that exists in our society is first degree intentional homicide. And they're like, yep, that's what we're going for. Instead of something else. I mean, who knows? Interesting little tidbit here. Um, even under these circumstances where there's, and we're not talking about trial, we're talking pre-trial. When things are presented to the judge or a court commissioner about where bond should be set in a case where someone, we should all agree, everyone should agree, was the victim of human trafficking. Yet because of the severity of charges she faced, her bond was set at $400,000, which is actually, compared to how some bonds are set in Cheboygan County, for example, um, that would be considered a low bond in this county for a first-degree intentional housing. Well, we've seen bonds in the million-plus range um, for these types of cases. So anyway, $400,000. Prosecution insisted that she's a flight risk. Um, and in spite of these aspects of the case, up until you know now, there's been this argument that she's probably going to lose because of the way that the trial court had ruled on this very issue. Well, she was actually able to post money through public funding, and uh, people gathered money together um, and basically were able to bond her out. She has been out of custody for, I'm not quite sure how long, but she's been able to continue fighting this while it's worked its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, so a little bit more about the... Uh, background of this whole thing uh she she had been paid in cash dinner and gifts by this person that means that in order to engage in sex right by exchanging something of value for sex that means that someone is a victim of child sex trafficking which is um part of the law that of course we know so on the particular night in question um this guy, Volar, he was under investigation by Kenosha police. They knew that he was engaging in all of this activity. They were just kind of investigating him for months. And he was not arrested. He was out free. Um, so one night in June of 2018, uh, he pays for an Uber for Crystal to come to his house. Um, she told police at the time after this incident that he, she was unable to tolerate Mr. Volar touching her. He was on top of her on the ground. And when she went for the gun that she brought in her purse, 
Um, he tried to tear off her jeans, and then she said she panicked, shot him, burned down his house, and stole his car. And these are the other things that uh, the prosecution's been relying on, is that someone who, if it was a direct result of human trafficking, someone wouldn't then burn down the house and then steal their car, a BMW, by the way. That That's kind of all what the motive is and it you know in even in traditional first degree intentional homicide cases anger can be a motive and not a defense if so if you're mad at somebody because you have been treated unjustly our law does not say that that permits someone to kill somebody else so that's why this has been so controversial is that we have this law that appears to apply directly to this situation Yet we have prosecutors saying it shouldn't. And then we have to go through what does that mean, whether it should or shouldn't, as it relates to the trial. So now all that evidence that relates to the suffering that she had been through, the um, you know lack of consent. Now there's another aspect of this that bears um, some further discussion, and that is there has been uh, comments from the Kenosha County DA's office that there was that this wasn't your full-blown human trafficking where somebody is, you know, forced at gunpoint or knife point or otherwise to engage in sexual activity. And in fact, Crystal Kaiser, there's evidence that she willingly went along with this at various points. Well, that fails to account for the fact that under our law, no child, nobody under the age of 18 can consent to anything, period. That's you know, bend the law forever, that a minor, someone who has not achieved adulthood, uh, is incapable under the law to consenting to anything. So that means even if she, quote unquote, willingly went along with some of this, or even all of it, she's still a victim of sexual assault because she, you know, sexual trafficking because she was not an adult. So that's all the time we have uh, for this week. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.